You're listening to a podcast from City Tribe Media. We're an urban tribe that helps people who feel far from God to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. For more fresh content, check City Tribe on YouTube, Instagram, or Facebook. Enjoy the message, and welcome to the tribe. To the church in Pergamum, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. You may be seated. with you guys today, whether in person or online. We've got a lot to talk about, but before we do, let's review for just a minute. You know, we've been studying through this very mysterious, like ruddy mysterious book of the New Testament called the Revelation of John, right? And we've learned throughout this series that what we're doing is we're being inspired to live now with the end in mind. So would you guys say that big idea for the series with me out loud when I point to you? Ready? Here we go. Live with the end in mind. So, so we want to live our lives now with the end in mind. And one of the things that we've seen is that we, God is calling us to return to our first love. And last week, Pastor Lee did a great job of explaining to us how Jesus is not just our first, but he's also our last. He's our everything, and he is the first and the Last And these seven churches that we're studying that are written about in the book of Revelation were experiencing an enormous amount of hostility toward them because of their beliefs. And you know, recently, in recent years, I felt a little more hostility about believing in Jesus. You know, uh, sometimes when, if, if I'm on a flight or I'm talking to people from around the city. You know, it's like when, when they find out what I do, when they find out I'm a pastor, uh, I see more of those little, I guess, jabs, if you will, the passive-aggressive jabs and smirks and things like that. And I wondered what's going on, and I saw this article in Time on Time uh, Magazine's website, and it said, regular Christians are no longer welcome in American culture. And the article was written by an author, Mary Eberstant, who graduated magna cum laude from... 
Cornell University, and she's done extensive research on intolerance in America, and it led her to write the book entitled It's Dangerous to Believe. And in this book, she talks about how Christian institutions now are being pressured to conform to secular ideologies, else they might lose their accreditation. She also talks about a New Jersey teacher who was suspended for giving a student a Bible. There was a Washington football coach that prayed after a game on the field, and he got in trouble. Uh, He was placed on leave. There was a fire chief in Atlanta who was actually fired after he published, self-published, a book on Christian morality. And then there was a Marine who was court-martialed for pasting a Bible verse above her desk. And so the work that Mary Eberstant has done has kind of surfaced many of the anti-Christian activists who are trying to position Christians, Bible-believing Christians, as bigots and haters. And perhaps you've felt the heat more, those of you that believe in Christ. Perhaps you've uh, been in those situations where people make you feel like if you're a Christian, like you don't believe in science. And you're like, hey, back up just a minute. Wait a minute. I'm, I'm, I'm all about science, right? Or maybe people have made you feel like if you're a Christian, that's, you know, a Christ follower, that's synonymous with being a bigot and a hater. And you're like, well, hold the phone just for a minute. I love all kinds of people. I don't agree with everybody and everything, but I love everyone, man. I'm kind to everyone. Uh, You know, I was talking to an educator recently and she was explaining that the unwritten rule in the school system these days is that you don't talk about your faith to anyone in the, the school um, you know, so you can you can see that this heat is kind of turning up. And I know some of you here are not followers of Jesus, but you're what we call our spiritual investigators, and you're just checking it out, trying to figure it out, and see if you think that God is for real. But one of the things that you feel sometimes is that you're drawn to Jesus, and as you're drawn to Jesus, you know in the back of your mind that if you actually end up believing in Jesus and trying to really walk in his ways— you know you'll lose some friends for it. So how do we navigate a world that's growing in its hostility towards those who believe in Jesus? And we're going to study in Revelation chapter 2 today the church of Pergamum that's going to show us three ways to navigate the growing hostility. And it has to do with our environment, expectation, encouragement. Environment, expectation, encouragement. So Jesus knows our environment. He raises the expectation and then he encourages us to be able to do it. So let's break down each one of those one by one. Number one, Jesus knows our environment. Look at verse 13 of Revelation 2. He says, I know where you dwell. He's like, hey, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. And so these people in Pergamum had really intense pressure to assimilate into the pagan culture around them. And it was so much so that it was called like where the the throne of Satan is. And some of you are thinking to yourself, yeah, you know, the, the guy I used to be with, he was Satan, and his recliner was the throne of Satan, right? My, my ex was Satan. But in, 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 no joking around here on this part, I know that it's hard for some of you because 
you mar- you're married to someone who doesn't hold your beliefs about Jesus, and it makes it hard. And others, maybe your parents are not, you, you live with your parents and they don't believe like you do. And it makes it hard. You feel this sense of pressure, or maybe you're the guy that's kind of the odd man out at the office because you don't go with the rest of the guys in the strip club runs after work. And I know that they put the pressure on you for that. And I know those things are hard, but living in Texas in the United States is nothing compared to what these Pergamon believers were dealing with. And the reason I tell you that is because if they can do it, we can for sure do it. We can for sure live by the power of God and uh, live in the ways of Jesus, even as the environment's growing a bit more hostile. And so in the passage, two times it mentions that the Pergamums lived where the throne of Satan is or where Satan dwells. So what is the throne of Satan? Well, I got some help on this from teacher Rick Renner, who's written a really great curriculum just on Pergamum, and what he does is he breaks down the Greek language and the nuance to what it means to be the throne of Satan or Satan's throne. And so he looks at the Greek word satanas, which is the word for Satan, and that just simply means one who hates, accuses, slanders, or conspires against an adversary. And look, if you start to really follow Jesus, you will have a spiritual adversary come against you. And then the Greek word for throne is thronos, and in the eastern lands of the Roman Empire, the pagans used this were to describe the invisible seats of power upon which the local or patron gods or goddesses sat to rule their towns, cities, or provinces. And so in Pergamum, what was the seat of power for the local gods and goddesses? It was something called the altar of Zeus. If you're here in person or watching online, you can see on screen an artist's rendering of what the altar of Zeus looked like. What you're looking at right now, if you're seeing this, is the throne of Satan. That's what it is, the altar of Zeus. So I learned from Joseph Stoll, a great scholar, in his book on Pergamum, that the people would take pilgrimages there to Pergamum to pray to these gods and goddesses that were I guess, carved onto the face of the altar of Zeus. If they wanted power, they would take a pilgrimage there and they would pray to one of the gods that would give them power. If they needed relationship help, if they needed, you know, food or prestige or whatever, they would go and pray to these gods for the things that they needed. And here are some of the gods that were there. Um, you, would, you would go up there to Pergamum and you would look up on the hill on the Areopagus and you would see Dionysius and Demeter or Ascalapius or Orion. And then the big daddy of them all was Zeus up there. And what captured my imagination and my heart is what John would be thinking when he rolls up to you know, Asia Minor, and he goes into Pergamum, and he sees all these gods, these Greek gods, 
carved up there, he would have remembered the things that his rabbi Jesus taught him. I'll show it to you in the form of a chart. When he goes up there and he sees on the throne of Satan the uh, carving of Dionysius, he knew that Dionysius was the god of wine and pleasure. In fact, Dionysius was thought to be able to turn water into wine. Is that ringing any bells for anyone? And so uh, John would be like, wait a minute, stop. I saw Jesus turn water into wine, right? Well, if you go back to Pergamum, you would see Dionysius was worship, worshiping him involved like a drunken orgy. And oftentimes it would get so crazy, it would lead to the taking of human life. And John would be like, wait a minute, when I saw Jesus turn water into wine, it was at a wedding where two people in purity came together to eventually create life, not destroy it, see? But if you look at the next God that John would have seen on the throne of Satan, it was Asclepius, who was known as the physician God. And uh, Asclepius was thought to be able to heal with moving water. Is that ringing any bells for anyone? So if you go to John's mind, he's like, wait a minute, I saw Jesus go to the pool of Bethesda, which was moving water, which was thought by the ancients to be able to heal people. And he's like, wait a minute, my rabbi Jesus, he healed a guy and he didn't even need the water to move. He just did it on his own, see? And another thing about uh, Asclepius is that the people that worshiped him, they, they built this place called the Asclepian Healing Center that was in Pergamum, the, study, the, the, the city that we're studying today. And what they would do is that these people would come there to get healing. And the pagan priests that ran the Asclepian Healing Center, they would give the people a sedative and they would have them lay down on the ground at night. And then they would release these non-venomous snakes. And the snakes would slither around, as some of you are getting the jeeves right now, you know. And they would slither around. It was thought that if the snake slithered over you, it would bring healing power. That's why even to this day, we have the symbol of Asclepius snake on a stick that is the, I guess, symbol of healing or medicine. Even to this day, it goes back to the Asclepian healing center. But if you compare that to Jesus, John would have thought, no, Jesus taught us that we can look to him. We look to Jesus to be saved, just like the ancient Jewish people in the wilderness looked to the snake on a pole that Moses held up in the wilderness when the people needed to be healed of venomous snake bites, you see? And another thing about Asclepius is it was believed that he had the power to bring back the dead, to resuscitate the dead. And John would have thought to himself, no, I actually saw Jesus do that. That other guy can't do it. I saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, and it keeps going. There was a goddess named Demeter, and she was believed to be the goddess who distributes groceries, especially grains and breads. And John's like, no, I saw Jesus distribute bread when he fed the 5,000. And then there was Orion who was believed to be able to walk on water. And John's like, no, I saw my rabbi Jesus walk on water. And then there was Zeus who was called 
the king of kings. He was supposedly the god of lightning and thunder. And John would have written down and said, no, my Jesus is king of kings, and he is also Lord of lords. And John describes Jesus' throne when he wrote in Revelation that the throne of Jesus from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. In fact, John would have heard Jesus say, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. You see what's going on here? Even before John would walk into Asia Minor, Jesus had trained him through miracles. And what I want to say to you today is that you're going through things right now and have gone through things in your past that Jesus is going to take and use in your future as you walk with him. And what John knew and many in Pergamum knew is that Jesus was in reality what all the mythical gods claimed to be, you see? So Jesus gave them everything that they needed to live a life of godliness. And so Jesus encouraged the pastor in Pergamum, and I like it when Jesus encourages the pastor, you know, and look what he said. He says, you hold fast my name, And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, who was my faithful witness. So who is Antipas? You don't hear a lot of stories about Antipas, do you? You don't know a lot about him, but I think he's a great guy. I think that you should name your children after Antipas. So someone go home today and, you know, get pregnant with a kid and name him Antipas. But he was the bishop of Pergamum, and he was trained and discipled by John, and get this, his prayers and his ministry was so powerful that the pagan priest at the altar of Zeus, you know, the throne of Satan, went to the Roman officials and complained about Antipas. And what they said was, they said, hey, that guy Antipas, he's a problem. Because I had these, the, the pagan priest said, I had demons come to me and tell me that Antipas is casting too many of us demons out of the city of Pergamum. So Antipas had such powerful prayers that the demons complained about him. How many of you want such powerful prayers that demons would complain about your prayers? That is awesome. Well, you know, eventually... He was such a problem, and he wouldn't shut up about Jesus. They did execute Antipas. And the way they would have done it was they took him up to the throne of Satan, the altar of Zeus, and they put him inside of a bronze bull. And they lit a fire underneath that bronze bull and literally cooked him, roasted him, burned him alive. And inside of that bronze bull would have been Pipes that went from the inside to the mouth of the bull. And so when the victims were inside screaming or wailing or moaning, it gave the illusion that the bull was alive making the noise. These are the types of things that happened at the altar of Zeus, the throne of Satan. It was a place of murder and death and false gods. So whatever happened to this altar of Zeus, and this is the weird part, in the early 19th century, German engineers went to Pergamum in Asia Minor in modern-day Turkey, and they deconstructed the altar of Zeus, 
and they took it to Berlin, Germany and had it set up in 1930 just in time to inspire a young Adolf Hitler, one of the most murderous leaders the world has ever known. In fact, Hitler had a replica of the altar of Zeus, this throne of Satan. He had a replica of it made, place it outside where he would stand up and give his speeches from the throne of Satan. So Antipas, the faithful man of God, saw Jesus as his first and his last, and he was murdered, cooked to death on the throne of Satan. And years later, many Jewish people were burned in the ovens of Hitler's fires. See? So this is the throne of Satan. And you ever wonder why people in the Roman Empire quit believing in the mythical Greek gods like Zeus and Demeter and Asclepius and all of them. Well, it's because the way they saw people like Antipas who were Christians, Christ followers, willing to die for what they believe. And the Christians died with such courage. They were thrown to the lions in the arenas and they would sing hymns as they were dying. And people realized those people are dying for something that at least they believe is real. So I can check into it. And they liked the courage that the Christians had when they were willing to give their own lives. And look, as our, our, our culture grows increasingly hostile, they're not going to be turned by our rhetoric or us taking a stand or any of that. They'll be motivated when they see we're willing to suffer for what Jesus says. Now, even though the leadership like Antipas and the pastor there were faithful, even to death, there was a problem with some of the people in the church. And here's where we'll see number two, the new expectation. It's like there's a higher expectation for those in the church. Look at verse 14. Jesus said, but I have a few things against you. You have some there in the church who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. In verse 15, he says, so also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so Jesus tells his followers to avoid Balaam, Balaam bad. Nicolaitans, not good, okay? Don't do the things that the Nicolaitans or uh, Balaam does. Now, you're sitting there, if you're like me, and you're thinking, who is Balaam? Okay, that's a weird name. But Balaam was basically just this guy who was a sorcerer from the Old Testament of the Bible, and he's known for having manipulated a bunch of Jewish men, and he would use these women to go in and get the Jewish men to compromise their sexual morals. And he also influenced them to eat this meat that was sacrificed to idols. Now, if you're sitting here in modern day times, you're thinking eating meat sacrificed to idols. I just eat meat that's been on my barbecue. What's going on here, okay? Well, what was taking place is, and, and by the way, if you read through the rest of the Bible, you'd see in the New Testament, sometimes Paul will say in the New Testament, don't eat meat that's sacrificed to idols. In other places, he says it's no big deal to eat meat sacrificed to idols. So what's going on there? Well, I think what's happening is this, is that when people perhaps were hungry 
and they would go to these pagan temples where they would they got to eat the meat that was sacrificed to, to the idol in like a religious ceremony that was kind of a, you know worshiping a false idol and to that Paul says that's wrong but what would happen is sometimes there would be leftover meat at those pagan temples to the idols and it was sold at a discount rate to the markets and so the markets would sell it and in that case Paul says it's no big deal you're just buying meat at the marketplace even though it was sacrificed to idols you're not doing it as an act of worship and so it's okay to eat it's kind of like when we take communion today you know we we go to the store and we buy some bread and we have some juice or wine and we take communion as uh, something that's in a good way, spiritually meaningful to us in a religious practice. And that's good. But some people just go to H-E-B and they buy some bread or some juice or whatever. They're not doing it for any spiritual purposes. That's different. You see what's going on here? So either way, the eating meat sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality was associated with this guy Balaam. And it's also associated with the people called the Nicolaitans. I talked about them in a previous service. If you want to back act, go back and listen. But what they did was they mixed their pagan sexual immorality with Christian spirituality and they were influencing other people to do the same and Jesus is not at all down with that. Jesus raises the expectation for us to live pure and holy lives with our sexual practices. So I want to give a disclaimer at this point. As I tell you that, I'm not telling you that to shame or guilt anyone because what I know about many of you is that some of you are like, Pastor Doug, I want to be pure and I'm trying to live my life for God, but man, I've just stumbled and old habits are really hard to break and I feel this guilt and shame about it. And I'm not trying to heap that on you, but here's where the problem comes is that when people say, hey, you know, that first they're trying and then they just give up and say, you know, I just can't stop. And you know, boys will be boys girls will be girls, you know? And when we give ourselves to it, Jesus says, no, I've got a greater expectation for you. You can live above that kind of lifestyle. And you know what Jesus did next? He did something that makes it really hard on me today. He told the pastor, you've got to warn them. He told the pastor in Pergamum, you've got to warn those who compromise not to do it. Look at this next verse. It's pretty pointed. Therefore, Jesus says, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon. And look at this next word. And war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now look, I've been very open with you about my past immoral practices. And I have had, I know what it's like in experience to have Jesus come war against me for things that I was going wrong. And there are others in this room that could raise their hands and say, you know what? I know what it's like when I've decided to disobey Jesus, I've experienced his discipline. He disciplines those whom he loves. And the Bible says here, he'll come against you. He'll war against you who compromise with the word of his mouth. The Bible teaches us the word of God is sharp. It's living and active and it cuts between the division of soul and spirit to the heart of the matter, right down to the heart. Since the word of God is powerful enough to shatter a rock, see, 
So this is not the person that you want to go to war with. Please consider this word repent if you're in the midst of compromise right now. He says repent, and repent is just a Bible word that means to change your mind in such a way that it leads to a change in your actions, you see? You change your mind about your sexual sin and let it lead you to a change in action. So the reason I said this is hard for people like me as pastors is because I understand and I know that a message of repentance is not popular today. And I'm one of those people, you know, I kind of like to be nice to people, you know, and I don't like to yell at people very often and tell you to repent and change your ways and all that kind of stuff. But there's a Bible verse that sticks in the back of my mind, and it says, in the last days, people will gather for themselves teachers who will tickle their ears and tell them just whatever they want to hear. And there are plenty of them out there, aren't there? Some of you have tuned in online to people that just tell you you're awesome, even when you're compromised. But I don't get to do that because I will not be an ear tickler. I love you far too much to just tell you what you want to hear. See? So look, yeah, don't encourage me on that, okay? (laughs) But look, uh, you know, a lot of people especially today, create a God that never disagrees with them. You know, I I would agree with this pastor and author named Tim Keller. And you know what he says? If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Isn't that the truth? And don't a lot of people just create a God that they want God to be? It's not a God. It's just like carving a piece of wood and making an idol and like saying that's God, but we do those idols in our own heads, see? Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, Pastor Doug, you're a real pick-me-up today. (laughs) Telling everybody to repent of sexual sin, getting up in our business, telling us that following Jesus, we might end up in some bronze bull that was inspired by the Hitler demon, you know, or something like that. Look, um, and so we need to get to the encouragement part, don't we? Because Jesus does want to encourage us, and and that's where I want to get to. This is number three. He encourages us and gives us a potential reward. See? Look at verse 17. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, if you can conquer your sexual sin, he says, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So he promises three things to reward you if you can control the sexual sin and conquer it. He says, repent and conquer. And the first thing you'll get is some hidden manna. And you're like, oh boy, what is hidden manna? (laughs) Okay, well, hidden manna, it was a bread, right? So he's first he's saying, I give you the bread you need to nourish your, your soul, not Demeter, okay? I'm giving you this bread. Now, the Jewish people would have known about manna, and it was like a sweet bread, right? You ever have sweet bread? It's like a sweet bread that fell from heaven when the Jewish people were in the wilderness and they did not know what they would do from one 
day to the next in order to be able to eat. They were stressed about it. And God provided enough manna for them each day. One day at a time. They had just what they needed for that day. And here's where this applies to you and your sexual purity is that I know some of you are thinking, I can't do it. I I can't quit having sex all the time with people I'm not married to. You know, you're like, I'm single and I end up dating these people and I end up in his apartment or I end up in her apartment and just one thing leads to another and we just always have sex. Or some of you are like, Pastor Doug, I'm addicted to porn and it's just too accessible. I mean, it's on my screen, it's on my my computer, it's on my phone, it's in my pocket. You know, I, I can't get away. I can't not do it. I can't. Well, I'm here to tell you today, yes, you can. You cannot do it. You know how I know that? You're not doing it right now. You're not having sex right now. If you were, it would be really awkward, wouldn't it? You're not looking at porn right now. I mean, I know I got it going on, but I, you're not looking at porn right now, are you? So it's plausible that you cannot do it, isn't it? And so I want to, I want to share something else with you. Is that here at City Tribe... I think that what we're embracing is where God says, my daughter, my son, you can do this. And I'm going to give you what you need to do it right now, today, just for today. You don't have to worry about two weeks from now or a month from now. Just take care of it today. You walk with me today and I'll give you the manna that you need to make it through today. And we're not trying to heap any guilt and shame on anyone because, look, if I was going to throw stones at you, I'd need to get out of the way because I could have some thrown at me from my past performance as well. And that's why we want to come alongside and help you. We're not trying to make you feel shame or guilt. We're trying to say, hey, together, let's join hands and live the way that God wants us to. That's why Pastor Joe told me that if enough of you guys go out to the tribe tent today, just right outside the doors of the cameo and tell them you want to join what's called Conquer's class. Conquer's goes through like the biochemistry, neurology, psychology, and theology of staying pure. And I, I just found out that one woman has already stepped up to lead the group for ladies and uh, we do it for ladies and men if you guys make sure and let Joe know at the tent right outside. But look at the next thing that Jesus says here. To the one who conquers, not only do you get the hidden manna, but he says, you get a white stone with a name on it written on that stone. So what is the white stone about? You say, great, I get a white stone. Some of your ladies like the only white stone I want is a diamond on my ring. You know what I'm saying? But look, here's what the white stone was, I've learned. In, that, in those times... The Roman athletes who participated in the games would get all kinds of different prizes for winning or conquering in the games. And they would get a, a square, a piece of marble, a marble stone as a reward. And you know what that marble stone did? It was like an all access pass into the emperor's gardens. The emperors, the Caesars at that time, they would throw these opulent parties in their gardens and palaces. And if you were one of those athletes that had conquered and won at the games, you could go to the gate and you could present it there. And you, you had that as a pass to get in. Can you imagine how privileged those athletes felt when they could go in and experience the opulent party there? So there's a chef here in San Antonio. 
Johnny Hernandez. Maybe some of you have eaten at his restaurants. I love his restaurants. And uh, I met his mother the other day, and she's a wonderful person. Um, but this chef, Johnny Hernandez, has been invited by two different U.S. presidents to go cook at the White House. So he cooked for Bush and Obama. And you want to know a little cheese may on the side. He's like, yeah, my pastor gossips, okay. But, but I hear that Johnny Hernandez got invited to drive up to Austin and cook for Elon Musk. thought that was, you know, I'm not going to lie, that's pretty dope, okay. So you, can you imagine how he feels um, when he gets invited to places like this? But can I tell you what Jesus is saying here? Jesus is saying, if you will control and conquer your sexual urges. I'm gonna give you a white stone that's all access to my place, Jesus says. And when you go to Jesus' place, the White House is not a big deal. When you go to Jesus' place, the Taj Mahal is not a big deal. When you go to Jesus' place, the seven-star hotel in Dubai is a nothing. When you go to Jesus' place, it makes the homes of the most rich, wealthy, powerful people on this earth look like cardboard boxes, he says, when you go to Jesus' place. But you know what else? Not only is your white stone all access to Jesus' place, but it also has something else. Look at the next verse. It has written on it a new name. A new name is written on it. So you know how celebrities change their names? They have a stage name or they, have a, they give themselves a new name. They change their name. So there was this guy named Joaquin Bottom. Can you imagine going to middle school with the last name Bottom? Okay, imagine he got teased. That's why he changed his name to Joaquin Phoenix. See? And there was a guy, Carlos Ray, and that doesn't sound very intimidating until he changed his name to Chuck Norris. And then there was a guy named Peter Hernandez, and he's now Bruno Mars, and Stephanie Germanata is now Lady Gaga, because celebrities know what we learn from the Bible is that your change of name changes your identity. That's why Abram was changed by God and given the name Abraham, father of many. And Sarai, her name was changed to Sarah, which means princess. And then there are people like Simon, whose name was changed to Peer, which means rock. And then there was Saul, whose name was changed to Paul, which means humble. And each time the name change reflects the new level of intimacy that the person has with Jesus. And in our passage today, you know what else it says about that name that's on the white stone is that no one knows what the name is except the one, except the one that receives the white stone. So can I tell you, my wife Jeannie and I, we have these names we call each other at home. We don't call each other those names in public. You want to know one of those names? Nunya. Stands for Nunya Business. It's just between me 
in her and no one else because it reflects the intimacy that her and I have together. Now, I know a lot of you who are Christ followers, you already know you're supposed to live up to your identity in Christ. And we teach a lot about identity around the church here. And you know that your name's like chosen. And you know that in Ephesians, he calls you like a masterpiece. And you know that you're like the apple of his eye. But what we're hearing about and reading about in Revelation goes a step of intimacy beyond your identity in Christ to a name that's just between you and him. And that's why I'd like you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. And as you consider this, I want us to ask Jesus to give us a glimpse of the names that we receive from him. And it's even more intense and intimate than when your parents or grandparents call you Miha or Miho. It's even more intense than when one calls you my love, papas, sunshine, mamas, honey, chulo, sugar, little buddy, chiquita, precious, preciosa. And so as you sit still in prayer for just a minute, Let's ask Jesus to bring to our thoughts a name that he wants to give us. And it's an encouraging name. So if it's not an encouraging name, it's not from Jesus. So Jesus, as we sit still and listen for your voice in our thoughts, in our minds, we listen for your encouraging name. For some of you, he's saying you're a conqueror. You're my little conqueror. You did so much more than even you thought you could. You will do even more than you think you can now. For others, he's saying, no, you're my precious daughter. This world has told you that you're something dirty, but that's not who I say you are. You're my precious pure daughter you're my pure son you're my little holy one yes you're like my holy miha mm. he says come sit with me where you're safe He says, you can forget all in the past and what's happened there. He says, you're safe with me. And my love for you doesn't change at all. And what my heart is to do is to give you this great gift of the hidden man and the white stone with a name that's just between me and you because you're that special to me. And you can do it. 
So Jesus, we thank you now for the kind words of encouragement that you brought to our minds today as we sat still to pray and listen. And we pray all of these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Everyone said, amen, amen. Anybody getting encouragement today from the Lord, from the Holy Spirit as you were listening for him? Amen, good, good. Well, next week, we're going to be giving some encouragement to dads on Father's Day. Do I have any fathers in the house today? Raise your hands real quick. Okay, next Sunday is about the fathers. It's about us. And so we're going to come. Guys, you can make the whole family come and sit at your feet here at the Cameo or at home. And after church, they have to cook for you. They have to rub your shoulders and all that uh, after service next Sunday. So next week is about the dads. Also, as we consider our worship through financial stewardship. I wanted to just let you know, those of you that are regulars here, this isn't necessarily for those of you that are our guests, but our offerings have actually over the past few weeks been down a little bit, some percentage, and it's affecting us a little bit. Now, I'm not telling you that to guilt or shame or anything like that. Um, And I'm not like telling you that to beg for anything or anything like that, because I know that God is going to provide one way or the other for us. He always does. Uh, But I wanted to let you know about that because some of you perhaps have gotten behind on your ties or whatever like that. You want to catch up this week. And we always want to remember why we tithe at the local church. It's because what happens here. And I want to just show you a couple of pictures of it. The first picture is if a daughter has baptized in her own dad. And you can see Alyssa there. She's baptizing her dad and kisses him on the forehead. And man, that's real hard to put a price tag on, isn't it? You know? If my daughter was baptizing me, I think the baptism might just overflow with my tears, you know? And then in this next picture, you'll see a guy that not only gets baptized, but he put a ring on it right there in front of God and everybody, you know, and he proposed. And these types of special things happen all the time here at City Tribe Church, all the time, all week long. And so it's important what we're investing our resources in. So if you're behind, go ahead and let's get caught up this week. And if you're new with us, uh, the way to get that done, since we don't pass buckets or plates or anything, is uh, you can donate by mail if you like to mail it into the P.O. Box number on screen or on our website. If you can also text to tie, you can simply text the number on screen. I think it's 74483. And you type the word tribe space, the dollar amount, and press send. Uh, In addition, you can donate online, give online, tithe online. Uh, If you forget everything I've said, remember this URL of our website. It's citytribe.church slash tithe. And tithe is spelled T-I-T-H-E. And if you go there, uh, you can not only donate online, but you can also get all the information I just let you know about concerning giving. And by the way, if you're here in the cameo, you can give in person at the giving stations that are located near the exits of the theater. So before you guys worship through your generosity, let's stand up together. If you're with your crew, you can join a hand and put one hand out. If you're sitting by yourself, you're never alone here in the family of God. We're with you. But dear brothers and sisters, As you go and exercise generosity, as you go from here, know that Jesus knows your environment, where you're going. And he raises the expectation on you and he gives you the encouragement, letting you know you can do this, my son or my daughter.
And so as you walk from here in a, an environment of hostility, walk from here taking his love, his light, his grace, his truth, impurity to those that need it so desperately walk from here living with the end in mind you guys have an amazing sunday we'll see you next time peace we're glad you're part of the tribe today to further connect with us check citytribe.church